Well, today I'd like to talk about forgetfulness. It seems like these days it's a pretty safe excuse or explanation when we botch something to simply humbly apologize and say that we forgot. I'm sure you've done that recently. Maybe not last week, but maybe in the last month you've had to say, I'm really sorry, I forgot. Now when I was in school, even in undergraduate in college, I forgot didn't work. I mean, you, you couldn't say, I forgot to do homework, I forgot to turn in a paper and, and get off on, on anything. It also doesn't work as an excuse to parents. So when kids say, oh, I, I forgot you told me to vacuum, um, a good parent will be patient with that a bit, and then will eventually say, well, it's your job to remember bend over, you know, something like that. Maybe, maybe less than that, but something like that. But among adults, it seems like it's different for some reason. I forgot my orientation day at my first week at Oxford University. Uh, days before, my parents provided the means for us to meet them, for Sarah and I to meet them in Paris, to take the channel, to go over to Paris and I honestly didn't deliberately skip my orientation to do so, but I was just so transfixed on getting to go to Paris for free with my sweet wife, and I didn't even look on the calendar. So when I got back to Oxford, I, I found out. I missed that. The head of the department told me that I missed that, and I was the only new student in the theology department that skipped the orientation. Not an orientation meeting, orientation day. So when he asked me, where were you, I had to say, I'm really sorry, I forgot. And he gave me a scowl, a, a British, snarky, dirty look. But that was it. I forgot was apparently forgivable, even to the Brits, even at Oxford. And since then, I've had plenty of occasions to plead for mercy on the basis of forgetfulness. I've missed lunches with pastors. I've missed doctor's appointments simply because I forgot. So it seems like I forgot, at least for adults, is a pretty acceptable excuse. And I hear the older you get, the more acceptable it is. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. But why? Why is forgetfulness an acceptable explanation for not doing something. Well, perhaps it's somewhat excusable because forgetting seems to have no ill intent, no, no bad motive. It seems as though it's just an accident. I mean, if you forgot on purpose, you didn't forget. You're lying. It's simply a hard drive malfunction, right? Well, that might be true enough for lunches and doctor's appointments and maybe even orientation days, but in the Bible, remembrance and forgetfulness are major, massive, and weighty themes. In the Bible, there's much more culpability about forgetting. And I don't mean forgetting to add something to the grocery list, not that kind of forgetting, but forgetting our relationship with God either explicitly or implicitly. 
forgetting all the implications that come with a relationship with God. It's a little bit more like your mid-school teacher and the way she would treat forgetfulness. It's a little bit more like forgetting your wedding anniversary. There's going to be trouble. There's something in the Bible that treats forgetfulness as willful, malicious neglect. And Psalm 78 is one place that teaches us that. It teaches us to fight against forgetfulness, and it teaches us that the fight against forgetfulness is a fight for life. It is a matter of life and death, even spiritual life, even eternal life and death. So turn to Psalm 78 in your Bibles, if you would. We've been calling the series in the big book of Psalms in the middle of our Bibles. been calling it, Pour Out Your Heart to Him, a phrase from Psalm 62. We've been calling it that because it's a fitting phrase for so many of the Psalms, but not all of them. So many of the Psalms are prayers. They're song prayers. They're to God. Psalm 78, though, is one that's not. It's not really a pouring out your heart to him, although it gets to that. It's for the purpose, ultimately, of us connecting with him, relating to him, being in communion with him. But Psalm 78 is not a prayer. It's instruction. It's like Psalm 1. It's what we call a history psalm. There are about six of these. There are five others. If you want to write these down, you might be interested after we're done with Psalm 78 today to go and read the other history psalms. 105, 106, 107 are history psalms. 114 is a very short one. And 135 is a little bit longer. But Psalm 78 is by far the longest of these history psalms. So because it's a long psalm, this Psalm 78, it's a bit unwieldy. Uh, It's difficult to sink our teeth into. If you look down, it's 72 verses. Maybe you've seen that show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And maybe you've seen sometimes where a burger or sandwich is made and Guy, Fiori, the, the host, will actually ask for advice from the owner of the restaurant or the cook of the restaurant before he digs into the taste test. He'll say something like, Okay, how do I go about this? I mean, give me some advice here. How how do I tackle this beast? And then, you know, he'll get some advice and he does this thing. He gets down like this, um, which I'm trying to do that more around the house and my wife isn't liking it too much. But sometimes you're eating something so big, you you just wonder, how do you go about it? Like one of those 64-ounce steaks, how do you go about it if you were to try well, Psalm 78 is a, it's a big honking burger. So let me help you out with how we go about this before you pick it up and, and start eating from it. There are three major sections to Psalm 78. So if we can keep this analogy going, think of it as beef in the middle. And then there are two buns, top and bottom buns. And this middle part, this history part, is the giant beef patty. So there's a giant beef patty of history here, and that's verses 9 all the way to 67, most of the psalm. Most of the psalm is history. 
It covers approximately 10 different Old Testament stories, mostly from the book of Exodus. And then you got one bun on one side and another bun on the other. And in case you think that the buns don't matter, right, because meat's important and meat's in the middle and meat's the history part, and this is a history psalm, if you don't think buns don't matter, just ask someone who's recently started the Atkins diet. Someone who's going yeast-free in their day three. They will rip a roll out of the hands of a baby. Right? They will kill someone for some soft rolls. So don't think that the buns here aren't important. Bread matters, and we'll see that. One bun of Psalm 78 is an intro, a preface, an explanation to the history patty. And the other bun is, well, it's real tasty, and I don't want to spoil it, so we'll tuck that away. We'll look at the shorter parts of it, the beginning and the end later on. Let's start in the middle, this beef patty of history. So we could call this section a hopeless cycle of blessing, sin, patience, and judgment. Verses 9 to 67. The section's a roller coaster. Let me just give you the themes, and then we'll look at them a little bit more carefully. A roller coaster that goes like this The people sin God's blessings. They sin and complain and doubt. God gets angry but still provides. They don't believe, and so there's judgment. Then they repent for a while, but it's empty repentance, but God still has mercy. He does wonders and glorious things of provision and care and protection, but they rebel against him, and then there's judgment, a bigger judgment, but then more promises at the end. It's about every three to five verses that the roller coaster takes a a turn or a, a curve. So look at verses 9 through 11. We'll read some of these. Some of them I would just encourage you to look down as I'm paraphrasing them. Verses 9 through 11 talks about the Ephraimites' sin. You can see in verse 9, it's a sin of cowardice in battle. In verse 11, you can see that they forgot God's works and his wonders. Who are the Ephraimites? Well, Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons. Hence, it's also one of the names of the 12 tribes, Ephraim. And so those are the Ephraimites. They're those of the tribe of Ephraim, the offspring of Joseph. And they'll pop up again at the end of the psalm. So we'll just leave it right there for now. So Ephraimites sin. They turn back in battle. They forgot God's works and his wonders. But verse 12 Well, verse 12 turns to God's blessings and his wonders and his work and his power and his provision with his people. It's amazing here. It talks about him dividing the Red Sea. It talks about him leading the people with a cloud by day and a fire by night. These are events that happen in the early chapters of Exodus where he split rocks in the wilderness to provide water for them when there wasn't any water around. He gave them drink, and it it flowed out. It says here, it flowed out like rivers, like streams, like 
cascading water. It's, it's exaggeration. It's hyperbole. But I'll tell you what, water that's flowing and it's enough to drink and more than enough to drink when you're desperate in the desert, it's like a cascade flowing off a giant cliff. God's blessings and wonders, his work and his power. But then look at verse 17. It turns back to the people. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Remember, he's already given water. He's already led them. He's already shown them in Egypt that he's the Lord and there's none besides him. So they get out in the desert, they get water, and they say, where's the good food? We used to have good food in Egypt. Why didn't you just leave us there? Here, we're going to die. There, we could have, yes, worked our butts off, but had good food. They craved what they used to have. Yeah, they craved it. Verse 19, they spoke against God. They say, can God spread a table in the wilderness? I mean, how do you have a banquet for lots of people, by the way, in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. But can he also give us meat and bread out here? Yeah, he can. He can. It's amazing. Verses 21 and following tell us that the Lord's anger was aroused. It was like a fire kindling against his people. Why? Verse 22, because they didn't believe in God. They didn't trust in his saving power. Then verse 23, notice the yet. He was mad at them, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven And he rained down manna for them to eat, this magical heavenly bread that that stuck around for a day and a day only. He gave them the grain of heaven, it's called. They ate the bread of angels. He gave them food in abundance. They could gather up as much as they wanted for that day. You could pig out on manna for a day. You just couldn't take it to tomorrow. Why? Because you had to trust him. You had to trust that he would keep providing. But he's showing himself faithful, isn't he? Day in and day out, the bread comes. And more than that, verse 26 says, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by that, he let out the south wind, and he rained meat on them like dust, quail. He gave them quail. He gave them the meat they wanted. They said, can you give us bread? Can you give us meat? He said, yeah, how about I got some angel bread up here? Throw it down, guys. And meat? Yeah, we'll just have a bunch of birds crash every day. Why not? And yet he let them fall, it says in verse 28. They ate and they were filled, for he gave them what they craved. Amazing. And yet before they had even satisfied this craving, verse 30 says, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger was against them. The Lord was kindled in his disappointment and wrath, and he laid low, some of them. 
In spite of this, they still sinned. In spite of this, they didn't believe. So he made some of them die early. Now verse 34 says, when he killed them, oh, they sought him. Now there's this temporary seeking. There's a little bit of repentance, but only after God killed a lot of them. And even worse, their remembering and their repenting was apparently only empty and temporary. What's it say? Yeah, they, verse 35, remembered that God was their rock, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their repentance was, in essence, lying. Their praise was, in essence, flattery. They were not faithful to their covenant. They weren't steadfast. (laughs) Yet, he had compassion and mercy on them. Verse 38 and 39 are something like the hinge of this whole psalm. They're the high point which show us something of the heart of God. Despite all this, we've already had three rounds of their sin in Psalm 78. It's, of course, many more rounds if you go and look at the actual history of it. But in Psalm 78, three rounds of their sin going on here, yet being compassionate, he atoned for their iniquity, he didn't destroy them, he restrained his anger often, he didn't stir up his wrath, he remembered that they were but flesh. He remembered. They didn't, but he did. They're just a wind that passes and comes not again. Amazing. It's like Psalm 136, another history psalm. Psalm 136 has this merciful hinge, except it's not just one thing in the middle. It's scattered throughout. Psalm 136 goes through history, one line at a time, and then the refrain in between each line is, for his love endures forever. He did this, for his love endures forever. He brought them through the Red Sea, for his love endures forever. He provided for them with manna, for his love endures forever. He was patient with their grumblings, for his love endures forever. Then, back to Psalm 78, there's a big chunk, verses 40 to 55, which are review. They kind of tell the same story again. It just sort of summarizes. They rebelled in the wilderness, they grieved him in the desert. It records God's wonders, his work, his power, and his provision in the Exodus. Again, how he parted the Red Sea. Which, by the way, just on that note, look over to Psalm 77 at the end there and see a picturesque description of God parting the Red Sea. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You led them through the Red Sea. Psalm 78 recounts again, and he led him through the wilderness. Again, recounts 
the cloud by day, the fire by night. They never had to wonder whether he was there or not. Manna in the morning, quail in the night, even getting what they craved, even being patient with their grumblings while they grumbled with full bellies. It lists several of the signs or plagues of Egypt. Here in Psalm 78, verses 44 and following, it talks about the the plague of turning the rivers to blood, the plague of the flies, the plague of the frogs. Not all of the, the plagues are listed here. There are 10 plagues total in the book of Exodus, and six of them are listed here. By the way, they're not even in the natural order that we find them in the book of Exodus. But they're there. They're, six of them are there, ending with the, the worst of them. The last one, verse 51, he struck down the firstborn in Egypt. Then he led his people out. He led them like sheep. He guided them in the wilderness. You see, it just unfolded in a variety of ways, even with repetition, to stress this thing of God's goodness, his provision, his persistent patient mercy and care and demonstrating his power and his glory at every turn because our God is a God who uses providence and miracles. And we could have a different Exodus story. We could have one that's just sort of like Joseph's story. At the end of the Joseph story, he can say, yeah, you darn brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But as you read the story, it just seems like there's a human explanation for this happening and this turned in the story and him ending up here and there and getting elevated there. That's a story of providence. God's no less involved. We could have that kind of story in the book of Exodus, but we don't. We have a story of miracles over and over and over again. He's demonstrating his power. He's showing forth his glory. He's saying, actually, with a God who isn't there, like who you can't see, he's invisible, here I am. Here's how you know I'm here. Here's how you know where to go. So merciful, and yet the rebellion, their doubt and their complaint was so persistent. If you were with us for our Lord's Supper, 11 days ago, this might sound really familiar to you. We looked at 1 Corinthians 10, which does something very similar to Psalm 78. In fact, no doubt Paul is leaning on or even mimicking the history psalms when he does that bit in 1 Corinthians 10. Now in Psalm 78, Asaph, the writer, takes the Exodus stories and then applies them to the time of David. We'll see that in just a minute. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul takes the Exodus stories and he applies them to first century Christians, and by extension, all Christians, even us today. Amazingly, Psalm 78 seems to emphasize God's patience and his mercy. Judgment's there, but the emphasis is on God's patience and his mercy. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul seems to emphasize God's severity and judgment. I note that only for this reason, 
If you're one who thinks that the Old Testament paints a picture of God that's fierce and mean and judgmental, but the New Testament God is Jesus and he lets little kids climb on him, he's merciful and happy and every painting you've ever seen has him smiling if not glowing. Well, be careful. As I just said, Psalm 78 seems to emphasize God's patience and his mercy. And Paul in the New Testament seems to emphasize the same stories, talk about the same stories, emphasizing God's severity and his judgment. Both are true. There's a time to say one, a time to say the other. But moving along in Psalm 78, we'll almost be done with the history section here. Verses 59 to 67 finally get to some decisive acts of judgment from God. There, there were some, some judgment before, and yet he quickly turned back to provision and care. But in verses 59 to 67, we'll see those in a little bit, all hope seems to be lost, but look at verse 68 right after. But he chose the tribe of Judah. Now that's making an important turn, a hopeful turn. So it ends on a hopeful note. In verses 68 to 72, at the end there, those five verses are part of the history lesson as well, but they skip from the Exodus story to the time of David. They're also distinct from the history lesson in a sense. They're part of the bun, you could say, not just part of the meat patty. So hold that thought. We'll look at those last verses in a little bit. First, I think it'd be best to back up and go to the top of Psalm 78. Those intro verses, verses 1 to 8, they tell us why this history lesson is so important. And it's already been hinted at in the meaty history section that we just ran through. Why history is so important? Because of forgetfulness. So verses 1 to 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from bold. Things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a new law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. They would arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, their fathers in Egypt, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Well, we can call this section a crucial commandment. It's fourfold, this crucial commandment. It's a, a commandment to listen, remember, Teach and heed. Listen, remember, teach and heed. Give ear to my teaching. That's the listen part. Incline your ears. No doubt this is applying to those who are new in the faith or those who are young in the faith, to children, 
Give ear to what I'm about to say. Incline your ears to it. What's he about to say? He says he's about to give a parable. Now, you think of New Testament parable. Those are sort of fictional stories. They're just illustrations. This isn't one of those. A parable can be either a fictional story like Jesus tells in the New Testament, or a parable can be a story for a purpose that happens to be a true and historical story. It's a parable. These are dark sayings from of old. Why are they dark? Well, because there's some mystery as to what they're about, right? There's a whole lot of story, and you have to sometimes shake the tree loose to see the, to see the twigs, to see the fruit, that kind of thing. Dark sayings from of old, which we've heard, verse 3, which we've known because our fathers told us, and we will not hide them from the children. We will tell the coming generation. Notice that in verse 4. As you connect the hiding and the telling there, like you should, it's saying that not telling your kids what you know about the Bible is hiding it from them. Oh, we don't want to think it's that malicious, but if you think about it, it is, isn't it? Not telling it to them is hiding it from them. We must tell it, from, tell it to them. We must not hide it from them and must not hide any bit of it from them as much as God gives the means for us to tell and to teach. Tell of his glorious deeds. Tell of his might. Tell of his wonders which he has done. You see how all of those have historical connotations. Deeds, might, wonders. Tell of the stories where God shows off. Where God shows us that he's the Lord and there's none besides him. Where God shows that he's stronger than any part of his creation. Any Pharaoh. He's not limited by anything like you are, like I am. Tell. Why? Well, verse 5, because he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Why? Why did he command our fathers to teach their children? So the next generation knows, verse 6. Well, why does it matter the next generation knows? Well, so that the kids who are yet unborn a generation later, they'll one day grow up and tell it to their kids. The end of verse 6 says, Again, why? Why would that matter? Why do you want to pass it on to grandkids even? Verse 7, so that they would hope in God and not forget his works. That they would keep his commandments. Why? Why is that important? So that they wouldn't be like their fathers in, in Exodus who were stubborn and rebellious, not steadfast, not faithful. You don't want to be like them and you don't want to have kids like them and you don't want to have kids who have kids like them all this was laid out in Deuteronomy 6 the Shema Israel's mission statement Deuteronomy 6 4 through 9 says hear O Israel the Lord is our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your might and these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, parents, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Here's how. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, 
when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you get ready for bed, when you first rise up, you should put them as a sign on your hand, like you might write doctor on your hand because you're dumb like me and you don't want to forget that you have a doctor's appointment today. Write them on your hand. Let them be like on your forehead. Post them all around your house. Post on the gate so when you walk out, you see it. Parents must know God's word. Parents must believe God's word. Parents must not just know it up here, but they must have it in their hearts. And then they have to diligently teach to their children. And their kids have a responsibility to, back to Psalm 78, verse 1, incline their ear. Give ear to those words. So, so far we've seen a hopeless cycle in Psalm 78. We've seen a crucial commandment. And then thirdly, there's a more certain future. The way the psalm ends, I said, is a more certain hope. A more certain future about a faithful servant shepherd. A faithful servant shepherd. And really, we could add another word to that. Really, we could say that Psalm 78 is talking about at the end there, a servant shepherd king. So let's take a running start at these last dozen verses here of Psalm 78. Remember I said that there's the decisive judgment that starts in verse 59? Remember there was an earlier judgment? He wiped out the young ones, the young men who were strong, and people temporarily repented. But then verse 59, there's something more decisive about God's judgment there before it turns into something more hopeful at verse 68. Hopefully you're looking down in your Bibles and seeing what I'm referring to. Now remember that the history section of Psalm 78, starting with verse 9, began talking about the Ephraimites. And I know I'm just about to lose you. Digging deep, 30 minutes into a message about the Ephraimites. Bear with me, though. They're those who turn back in battle, and they are the focus of God's judgment in this passage. They epitomize forgetfulness, which leads to lostness. The Ephraimites turn back in battle. That probably refers to 1 Samuel 4, a chapter where the Ark of the Covenant, that Ark was the box of God's glory. It was captured by the Philistines in battle. Well, guess who was in charge of the ark back then? The Ephraimites. The ark was being housed in Shiloh, a city in their territory. Territory. So a lot of Psalm 78 is generalizing the sin of God's people. A few of the verses single out the tribe of Ephraim. Why? Probably to explain why the ark had been taken by the Philistines. It says here in Psalm 78 that God let it go. And how the glory of God would never be housed there among the Ephraimites again. God's presence was in a tabernacle in Shiloh, in Ephraim, up until the time of David. When the ark was eventually returned by the Philistines, it didn't go back to that northern city, Shiloh, of the Ephraimites. It went more close to Jerusalem, basically back to Jerusalem. Not to the tribe of Ephraim, but to the tribe of Judah. 
Look at verse 60 of Psalm 78. There, it says, He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. What I just said. The tent where he dwelt among mankind. And he delivered his power. That's referring to the Ark of the Covenant. He delivered his power to captivity. He let it go to the Philistines. His glory to the hand of the foe. And then he gave his people over to judgment. Now skip to verse 67, where we see that he rejected the tent of Joseph. There's the decisive judgment. He didn't choose the tribe of Ephraim. And now the more hopeful part, the more certain future. But he chose, he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, that's where the ark is going to go. And that's where God's glory is going to dwell. That's what he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which is founded forever. Verse 70 says, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. A hopeful ending to the psalm. Up until the time of David, Ephraim was the largest of the 12 tribes, so it would seem predictable that the future king would come from the mighty Ephraim, home of the tabernacle, home of the ark for a time. But no, remember Genesis 49.10, that God promised there would be a lion-like ruler who would come from the tribe of Judah. David is of the tribe of Judah. So David is God's man. He's a righteous man, and he will shepherd the people with integrity of heart. He will lead them with skillful hands. So with David, finally, it seems like there's some stability. God is blessing. There's peace on all sides. But only two generations later, the kingdom's torn in two. What was hinted at with this thing of God not choosing Joseph and Ephraim and leaving the northern kingdom comes to fruition. There's a full break in the kingdom. Northern and southern kingdoms, plural. Now, only two generations after David. And from there, you know it's a roller coaster. We said it last week. It's a roller coaster of bad kings, occasional good kings. But even during the good kings, the people on the whole are wayward and idolatrous and fickle. And in the time of David, it seemed so hopeful. They knew so much. The time of Solomon, it seemed so gloriously complete. The temple is here. God is dwelling in the midst of his people. Peace on all sides. Blessing from all the nations. Blessing to the nations. The nations calling you blessed. They knew so much. They even knew more than those in the Exodus years because they had those writings plus their own experience. And yet they too eventually persisted in the same sins, the same rebellion, the same idolatry and unbelief The Old Testament is generally, if you get the whole thing, it's generally a sad, sad book. And yet God's mercy 
And his goodness is a silver lining behind every dark cloud of Old Testament stories. God's patience is incredible and he keeps warning through the prophets and through occasional good kings. He gives them fatherly discipline like their time out for 70 years in Babylon. He intervenes to no avail it seems. And eventually in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of a woman, to be the true and final servant, shepherd, king. He's the son of David. He's the lion-like ruler of the tribe of Judah. He's David's Lord, he says in Psalm 2. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, Philippians 2 says. With an upright heart, he shepherds us and he guides us. He's the shepherd, and he gave us a whole chapter about that in John 10. He gave a shepherd sermon, and he says the shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He's such a good shepherd. He doesn't just provide, he provides by sacrificing himself. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Christians think the cross is so important. Yes, it's a symbol of death. But because of the resurrection, it's a symbol of life and life eternal. We pray you'd know that. We pray you'd embrace that. We pray you'd find in yourself no hope at all, but in Christ all hope. And let me just give you one more closing point of application. We saw a hopeless cycle, a crucial commandment, a more certain future, and then fourthly, there's a heightened responsibility now. A heightened responsibility of living in light of sad story and sure hope. Verse 4 of Psalm 78 summarizes it all for us. We will not hide them from the children, but we will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. You know, there's a sense in which we should see ourselves in the up and down cycles of Psalm 78 and the the Exodus story. I mean, we're up and down, aren't we? Your faith comes and goes, doesn't it? Mine does. My resolve for obedience comes and goes. I have good days, I have bad days. I, I see great things in his word. And sometimes in my highest moments, I find that I'm the weakest towards temptation. Why is that? There's a sense in which we should see ourselves in the cycle, cyclical, cyclical stories of the Old Testament. But there's a sense in which we should see our situation as way more hopeful. Jesus came to shepherd us and guide us. And he's a better shepherd and a guide than what they had in Exodus or at the time of David. That's part of the new covenant. He's written his law on, his heart, on our hearts. So from our vantage point, we can... We can look backwards to not only all the sad history and benefit from that, but we can also look backwards just 2,000 years ago to the plan unfolding with the cross and Jesus as our sacrifice, our righteousness, our life, our salvation. So we've seen through his word more and more of God's wonders and power and his care and his grace 
than any age before. Do you get that? We know more than, than they knew. We have more than they had. We look back at Israel forsaking its God with full bellies. We marvel, we shake our head and say, oh, what dumb persistence towards sin. And yet, we know more than they knew. By his word, we've seen more than they've seen. And therefore, we've not been given ease in Jesus necessarily. Not ease alone. We've given more, been given more responsibility, a heightened responsibility. It's amazing they forgot, and it's amazing. It's breathtakingly amazing that I forget my God. Even for a minute. So we must fight forgetfulness with reading his word and remembering the stories and the truths and recounting, rehearsing, doing discipline to do that, diligently doing it, reapplying, realigning. And of course, there's so many lessons in Psalm 78, not just for ourselves, but for our kids and for parenting. One lesson is that parents should be the primary means of spiritual instruction for their kids. They should be the spiritual leaders of their kids, not a youth minister, not elders, not the church, not a Sunday school teacher. The church should come alongside parents for instruction to their kids, programmatic instruction to their kids, counsel to parents. That's what the church is for in part. Also providing resources and giving encouragement and pointing in the right direction. And both of those angles are important, that parents have the primary responsibility of the spiritual welfare of their kids, not the church. God has not given you this responsibility to drop them off. Oh, drop them off, stay with them, whatever you do, take them to church events or to a Sunday school, sure. But God has called you to have his word in your heart and to teach it diligently to your children and to saturate your home with it. But there's the church as well. That's an important thing. That's why we do children's ministry at Desert Springs to help you, to help your kids, and to, to give God-centered, biblically-rich instruction. Psalm 78 is also no small part of why we want kids with their parents in the worship service as, as soon as they're able to sit still for this long. I know they won't get all of it, but they'll see something of weight and glory in this service that they can't capture in Sunday school classes. Psalm 78 is part of why DSC sermons are neither short nor shallow. If you want self-help, if you want entertainment, and if you want a promise to be in and out as fast as an oil change, this is probably not the place for you. There are plenty of places that do that just fine. Psalm 78 implies that ministry and church life should be intergenerational, that the younger should look to the older. Why? Well, because they've read more Bible and they've heard more sermons and they fought more sin and they dealt with more suffering usually. Psalm 78 also reminds us of the importance of the Lord's Supper, 
our remembrance meal, right? This whole thing's about remembrance. And he's given us this meal to look at a piece of bread representing his flesh, look at a cup representing his blood, to eat, and to once again partake of the communion of the gospel with him. We have to fight for these things. Because the church is just one generation away from extinction. Usually it happens two or three generations at a time. D.A. Carson talks about this. He says, when one generation believes and teaches the Bible, and the next generation merely assumes the teaching of the Bible, the third generation will usually outright deny it. You can find it all over the Bible. David, Solomon, goes downhill from there. I've seen it in our church. I've seen it in a three-year period or two-year period. I've seen kids affected by parents' laziness or waywardness or numbness, whatever you want to call it. So let me ask, what's the trajectory of your life right now? What's the trajectory of your godliness, your walk with the Lord of the last three years? or six months, or, or three months. Extrapolate that line out for the rest of your life, for the rest of your kid's life. Just, this, just draw a straight line of the last six months, the last three months, three years. You know. Is that a frightening thought? Oh, I know God often blesses our kids beyond what our godliness, our instruction deserves. I pray that all the time, that God would make my kids more holy than my parenting would warrant. But often the trajectories become realities. Psalm 78 also makes clear that the highest priority in all this is not kids. It's not kids. The highest priority is not that kids turn out. It's not that they don't embarrass mom and dad. It's not that they don't break mom and dad's heart. The highest priority of life is God's highest priority, and it's his testimony. It's his truth. It's his fame in the world. And the family is one of his primary means of preserving his truth, nay, propagating his truth and his testimony in the world. And so, can I dare say, maybe we should think less romantically about children and more pragmatically about children. Not every culture needs to hear that lesson, but our hallmark, photography obsessed, chubby cheek pinching culture, that, that's a culture we live in. That, I'm a product of that culture, man. I love babies. You better watch out. We haven't had one in a while. <laughs> I mean, we should think less romantically about our children and more pragmatically about why God gives kids. According to Psalm 127, they are arrows. Arrows to be shot out by a warrior. They're to be shaped and they're to be shot out. 